This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. I'm still haunted by the one that got away. Or I should say the ones that got away. I remember hooking a fish I never saw one spring on the Madison River, and it ran down river and into my backing before the leader caught on a rock and snapped off. Then there's the king salmon I hooked into on the Wilson River near Wasilla, Alaska a few years ago while I was fishing for trout. I played it for a while, but I eventually snapped it off because I didn't want to break my nine foot six weight and I didn't want to wear out the fish. Looking back, I think I could have landed both fish, or at least had a better chance, if I had known then what I know now. Dave, do you have any memories of fish you lost and think you could have landed if you had just done a few things differently? Uh, I don't think so. I think I've caught all the big fish that I've ever hooked. You know, I also remember, I don't know if it was the same time, but it was a spring day on the Madison in the Bear Trap. I think it may have been in 2010. You sent me a pic recently. One was from 2008 and one was from 2010. And this picture, of course, did not include the big fish because I didn't catch it. But I I remember the day. It was gusty and then it was snowing then it would be sunny out and then it would be the wind would stop and then it would be gusts of 20 miles an hour but that day I hooked into what had to be a 25 inch brown and it hit the it hit a I think it was an egg pattern right at the end of the drift and as soon as it hit I thought I am not getting this fish in and I tried to walk run downstream but the current was too strong and at and back then, I really didn't have the patience or know-how, but ultimately ended up being a bad knot. And it snapped off, I think, where my tippet was tied to my leader, and that was it. So you think that fish was a brown, even though we were in the spring, or it would have been a rainbow, maybe? Oh, good question. It was probably a rainbow. I don't know. For yeah. some reason, I had brown in my head when I was thinking yeah. about the story. But you're probably right. Yeah. It was probably one of those fat rainbows. That we sure caught some big browns there in the fall, that's true. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, today we're going to give some uh, practical tips for landing fish, whether it's a 10-inch brookie or a, or a 22-inch rainbow or a 25-inch brown. So, uh, Dave, get us started. What's, uh, what's one of the tips that we would uh, offer to ourselves and then to others about uh, landing fish? So I think landing fish comes down to... Uh, at, at, at its core, tying a good knot. And whether you're young in fly fishing or new to fly fishing or whether you're older and a veteran of fly fishing, if you tie a good knot, your chances of hooking that bigger fish just go up dramatically. And I have been one who I, I'm so quick to get out into the river and to fish that I tend to be a little sloppy with my knots I can go, you know, it looks like that I've actually, you know how it is when you, t- the, the, you, t- you the knot is taut and you make it tight. Sometimes uh, you've, you've stretched the line or you've ruined the line. You can see that it's, it, it's a little, uh, what's the word? Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but you can see that 
you should retie the knot. And mm-hmm. often I won't because I'm so and I'm or I'm so quick to get out onto the river. So I think increasingly as I've gotten older, I've been able to control my desire to get fishing immediately with the deep memory of having lost so many fish, even smaller fish with bad knots. So what kind of a knot do you like to tie then, Dave? So I use the infinity knot today, and I didn't always use that knot, but I uh, I discovered the knot through a listener, a guy named Chuck, and it's the simplest knot to tie between your leader and your tippet. And once I learned that, uh, I've never tied a different knot. The only thing that's different from that that I do is I add an extra loop in there, and it makes it so tight, and I just have never lost fish. I, I just don't break it off there anymore. Uh, unless there's something wrong with the tippet itself or the leader itself, but the knot never breaks. And so, um, if you go to the website and just Google—not Google, but you go to the website and search for Infinity Knot—and you'll see the video. I just stuck with the improved clinch, but it's important that it's an improved clinch, not just a clinch knot. But you're you're running the uh, tag end back through that loop uh, one more time and. And we've talked about this before, but making sure that you wet that knot uh, with a little bit of uh, saliva, although, I don't know, maybe the procedure will change, you know, after this uh, coronavirus thing. But uh, it really is important to wet that, otherwise the, the tension of the monofilament's going to weaken it. But you're right. I wonder how many fish, too, I've, I've lost at times because of... Uh, yeah, because of bad knots. So do you use the improved clinch for tying the tippet between, or the knot, excuse me, the knot between leader and tippet? Is that what you use for that? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was thinking of attaching it to, uh, yeah, to the fly itself, to the hook, the little eyelet. Actually, for that, I still use kind of a surgeon's uh, knot. No, I've, I've gotten decent at it. I'm still... Uh, uh, you know, not at warp speed like a guide does, but that, but that works pretty well for me. And and I, but I, yeah, even there, I, I'm always testing that knot. I'm suspicious of it, so I'm, I'm I'm putting it through the ringer after I tie it. And sometimes then it'll snap and it ticks me off. But I always think, well, uh, better that I did that than lost a 16 or 18 inch uh, fish. Yeah, so true. Uh, so I think back to our main point here. I mean, you can talk all you want about different other techniques, but if, in fact, your knots are not solid and good, you're going to lose even small fish, and I am a testament to that. And to be honest, I don't lose as many fish anymore because I've become more patient in tying my knots. So anything else, Steve? Is there uh, other practical tips on basically how to land fish more successfully? Yeah, here's a second one, and... This only works if you do what you just said, Dave, and that's tie a good knot because uh, this is getting a little bit more aggressive, but it's pulling the fish from side to side. And it's, it's Gary Borger who uh, really taught me this. Uh, you know, when you see fly fishing photos, uh, it's, you know, if you get a good photo, you, you, know, you have somebody holding their rod up, they're holding it high, or they're, they're pulling up. I think that's what a lot of us do, but what Gary says to do is to, to pull that fish to one side, uh, then to pull it to the other side, and uh, yeah, he's a scientist, so he, he understands how the, the muscles are on these uh, fish, and just the chevron patterns, and, 
and and how you know if you pull them from side to side rather than straight up that's when you make them work so yeah i've i've uh i've, I've used that and again it's a little bit more aggressive approach and so it does require that you have a uh, you know a solid knot but it really does seem to tire them out a little bit more so again instead of just pulling up with your fly rod you're pulling it to one side and then you're pulling it to the other and it really does seem to work for our listeners who don't know who gary borger is why don't you tell them that and also tell them uh, about your relationship with him and then i think you and i went to see him i think it's five years ago in may yeah gary borger is a legendary fly fisher he grew up in pennsylvania went to uh, penn state so he fished all those small streams in central Pennsylvania, did his PhD at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then taught for a number of years at uh, UW-Wausau, where he had a home. And he's moved out to the West Coast now, so he and his wife can be uh, by their son and his family. But uh, Gary has, uh, you know, over the years, he's written a ton of things. I mean, the first pair of wading boots I got were Gary Borger Ultimate Wading Boots, and they were designed by him. And then he uh, he was one of the consultants on the movie A River Runs Through It, and his son Jason did a lot of the casting, uh, the, the shadow casting like on The Rock. But Gary's written a lot of books, and you know, because he's a scientist, he has a lot of good insights into this. And I don't know, I just kind of met him once by emailing him and struck up a little bit of a relationship and got him involved at a at a camp uh Clyder's Christian Ranch doing a fly fishing camp there and yeah you and I went up and we interviewed him about a year before he moved to the west coast that yep. was a ton of fun wasn't it it was 2015 it was when we launched yeah. our uh, podcast yeah good guy so yeah that tip is from him so Dave what else would you say uh we're uh, making sure that we're tying a good knot we're we're pulling that fish from side to side what what else do we need to be doing the next one is to make sure you get rid of the slack so your reel and rod can absorb a sudden run. And this is really, really hard to do, especially if you have long drifts or maybe when you have a lot of line at your feet, the different places where that might happen. From the moment you set the hook to making sure there is no slack in your line while reeling up your slack with your left hand, while not trying to let too much of out of the line under your index finger in your right hand, is where you often lose a lot of fish. At least I have lost a lot of fish. So think about it when you, you, know, you first set that hook and it, the line at that point is tight, right? But there's all this line that's at your feet. And as you're starting to play that fish, you've got, if that fish starts to run, you've got to let line out with that index finger while also trying to reel up the line. Now this is not as important with smaller fish because you can use the line that's in your index finger and just reel that kind of pull the line in and work it that way until you get them to shore or to your net. But with a long with a bigger fish, I always like to have them fighting against the reel. And that transition from all that loose line at your feet or my feet to getting it where that line is all taken up and then learning to fight that fish with the reel man that's a that transition point is if that line gets has any slack in it you often will lose the fish 
Yeah, that's where I panic the most, Dave. <laughs> you know, that's when I worry about losing it because if if I'm keeping that line tight, say with my right index finger while I'm trying to reel in the slack, and that fish surges, it's it's a snap. So yeah. I I guess I try to make sure I don't put too much tension. I would err on the side of letting that fish uh, run and having a little more slack than I'd like. Uh, you know, than than having it too tight, and, and that may only be a five second or a 10 second. It just depends on which line you have up, but that's a, that's a tough moment. All right, here's another tip for uh, landing fish, and that is to lower your fly rod so that the pressure is on the midsection or even, even moving towards the, the lower end, towards the butt rather than the tip. Now, a lot of pictures you see, you have uh, fly fishers who have that rod straight up in the air pointing to the sky. It's like a flagpole like the Washington Monument, uh, just sticking straight up to the sky. And that makes for an impressive photo. In fact, then what some guys will do is they'll even hold it higher. You, you actually hold the rod above your head, and that really looks great for the photo. The problem is it puts all the pressure on the tip section. So this is where you have to move from a Washington Monument to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, Man, I always want to say pizza, Dave, but what is it about that? Yeah, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I think that's how you say it. My, my French isn't very good, but my, my Italian, when it comes to pizza, is good. Anyway, so the more you lower that rod, so you move it, say, from a 90-degree angle where it's pointing straight up, and you just lower it to about a 45, uh, the tension point or the pressure point on your rod slides down from the tip to that midsection. And if you lower it even further, it just keeps moving down into the butt section. So I think I could have landed both those fish, well, especially that salmon. I was nervous. I'm fishing for trout. I've got this nine foot, six weight Winston. I don't want to break or snap the tip. So I'm just going to. I played that salmon for a little bit and then I then I just snapped it off but I think if I would have been really careful so that the pressure is on the midsection maybe down towards the butt I think I could have uh, I think I could have hauled that thing in now question then would have would have been did I have a good enough knot but uh, I it wouldn't have hurt my rod and, and again I that's another thing I learned from Gary Borger just the physics of uh of how that works by the way, I think I would have paid a lot more attention in physics class if I uh, <laughs> realized how much of physics uh, applies to fly fishing. Yeah. It, all that just seems so irrelevant to me. If they would have put some equations to understand fly fishing, you're right. It would have made such a difference. Oh, I know. In biology, man, I would have written, I would have stayed up till wee hours of the night writing papers on uh, uh, entomology, on insects. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what else, Dave? Anything? I mean, we, we've hit some of the keys here. We've got to tie a knot we can trust. We're, we're pulling that fish from side to side. We're, we're lowering our, our, well, we're making sure we, uh, as you said, get rid of the slack. And then we're, we're lowering that rod so the pressure's on the midsection. Anything else that we can do to make this uh, uh, work? Another is to use a landing net always and... I, I must confess, this is hard for me to do on smaller spring creeks, you know, in the Wisconsin and Minnesota driftless. If I know I'm catching an 8 to 12 inch trout and that's the size I'm probably going to catch, 
I have to think twice about dragging around a net and it's probably because I only have one size net. I have the fish pond, one of the bigger nets, and I really like it for the western rivers, but on the smaller river or smaller spring creeks, I struggle to use it. And it's not struggle to use it, it just seems so unnecessary for the size of fish I'm catching. And so sometimes I'll think, well, this creek is so small, they'll come to hand real quickly. But I think you always need a net. And I know, Steve, you have multiple sizes of nets. Yeah, I only have a couple. I have the, like that, the same one that you do. I think it's that fish pond emerger. That's a beautiful net. But, yeah, we'd also get laughed out if we were carrying that big dog in to uh, land 10-inch fish. But, yeah, I had a Broden that had uh, uh, string netting, and then I, I replaced it with another one that just has the, uh, the rubber uh, webbing. Uh, but yeah, I, I just have those two. So kind of a small one, have a, have a bigger one. And yeah, having a smaller one that I'm, I'm more inclined than to take it on the tripless. I, I get it. You know, you, you don't want to take a huge big net there, but yeah, I've, I've gotten used to, uh, kind of landing those smaller trout, even with a net. And, and while it seems overkill, you're right. It, it's not that I have to do it for me. It's more like well, I'm doing that for the fish. It's going to give them a more gentle landing. So is that smaller net also a fish pond? No, that's another Broden, I think. Um, but it has the rubber netting. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And that's important too. You know, the, the rubber webbing uh, versus the, the strings. I mean, the strings, there's just no give. And that's that can be hard on a fish. And there's some question too about how that might uh, rub off that that slimy layer on the outside of a fish where uh, the rubber webbing is just a lot friendlier. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, in addition to a landing net, there's probably one last point that we can make here, our uh, final point. And I think that's really about the kind of our mindset. And it's, it's really, really important to get the fish in and released as quickly as possible. Our friend Dave Cumling, who we uh, just interviewed a few episodes ago. He talks about that re- the, the key thing to fish survival is reducing the amount of time it takes to land the trout. In other words, from the time you hook the fish to the time you release the fish is the most important factor when it comes to survival, even way and above uh, whether you use a barbless hook. The issue is that time that interregnum from the time you hook the fish to the time you release the fish. And that's why a net is so important because it enables you to do it typically much more quickly and more efficiently. However, I do think there's a time for patience. And certainly that's true with larger fish. And you don't do it to play the fish, right? You're not trying to just enjoy the fact that you have this fish. No, you're still trying to get the fish in as efficiently as possible. But you're not just trying to rip in the fish as fast as you can. And I think with bigger size fish, this is where often I tend to lose fish. I Last fall, you and I were fishing the Madison and was fishing this section where you and I fish often in the spring and catch the rainbows. But on my third or fourth cast, I had this huge brown that hit hit my nymph. And as soon as it hit it, the fish immediately headed for the middle of the Madison. And I 
I my first thought was I am never getting in this fish. That was the first thought I had. Like there's no way I'm ever getting this fish back. And I mean, my reel actually screamed. I, that has not happened a lot in my fishing experience. Mm. And so again, my first thought was, okay, I'm dead. That knot's not going to hold. There's no way I'm going to get this. Well, but all of a sudden that thing came back. And with some of these being a little bit more patient in how I played the fish and just some of these techniques that we've talked about, I was able to get that fish in and actually net the fish. And I realized maybe I have matured a little bit, but certainly it's the mindset. that. So the last point here is that you have to have a mindset that if it's a bigger fish, you just can't rip that fish in as fast as you can, even though you want to do it as efficiently as possible for the fish's survival when you release it. But I do think it requires being a little bit more patient on some of those bigger fish. I think it's a great point, Dave. And that's a, it's probably a good place to end this part of our discussion. I mean, the bigger the fish, the more patience it's going to require. You have to balance between uh, quickness and patience. So, yeah, you can land more fish. You can increase their survival rate if you uh, kind of adopt some of these practices that we've learned the hard way. All right, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here's a comment from our friend David. He's a South Dakota fly fisher, and he writes this in response to our episode on fishing emergers during a hatch. Now, this is what David writes. Good podcast, gentlemen. The emerger. Absolutely my favorite fly to fish. I just about use one every time, everywhere I hit the stream. My go-to fly is a CDC emerger that some call the F-fly. By the way, I should probably stop here and just say, if you're new to fly fishing, CDC feathers are the feathers from the back of a duck. They're near the tail area. All right, so David's go-to is a CDC emerger that some call the F-fly. He says, I was taught to tie a version of this fly long before the F-fly made its debut by an old gentleman I met on the stream in the Black Hills. He showed me this pattern he came up with that he claimed caught over 50 trout that day. Of course, I was skeptical, but definitely wanted to give it a try. The CDC emerger can be fished in several different ways. Subsurface, on the surface, dead drift as a dry, or swung and dragged, probably representing a caddis. One of the best days on the water, I fished a tiny early blackstone fly hatch letting the dark gray CDC sink just below the surface. That day was epic. I have looked forward to seeing the little stonefly hatch ever since. I love, love, love the emerger. I definitely recommend the CDC F-fly, also the RS2. My version of the F-fly is a little longer tail tied in, dark done, and that often can make the difference. You can start with this fly as a dry, and be ready when the trout are going after the emerger in a split second by letting it sink. Sometimes I will let the fly complete the drift and strip the fly back like a wet fly or a super small streamer. Wow, that was a ton of wisdom packed into that uh, comment. Man, it sure was. And it just goes to show the the emerger is... uh, uh, really ought to be a go-to fly, uh, more uh, more than probably some of us make it. Well, I think that's going to do it for today. Hey, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>